0: This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hey, bro, how you doing?
1: Just fine. And how are you, Allison?
0: I'm doing great. In this week's episode, Morgan Housel is back, and he's going to talk about his book, The Psychology of Money. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers.
1: Well, Allison, what is up?
0: Well, bro, I feel like you're the ham to my cheese. We compliment <laughs> each other. You you bring the practical money advice. Like, here are 14 different studies about required minimum distributions. That's bro's department.
1: Which everyone loves, by the way. They just love it.
0: Right. Well, you are the bachelors of science to my BA, more liberal arts degree. So so you're saying you I'm the
1: st- one with the BS? Is that what you're saying?
0: Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't say it right out loud. But yes. If you want to sit in an overstuffed armchair, gaze out a window and say, you know what's fascinating about the art on currency in Australia? That's my department. If you want practical tips and facts, go down the hall to Professor Bro's office. Because where I am, we just talk about, like, isn't that funny? So here we are. For today's What's Up, Allison." I present the backstory to three songs about money. Is this practical advice you can use to rebalance your portfolio? Absolutely not. Is this pure waiting at the Volkswagen dealership for your car to get fixed? Escapism? Yes, it is. That's why this was written. Here we go. And by the way, the bill came out to only like 64 bucks. So we're fine. All right. First up. rich girl you because you know it don't matter anyway. Rich girl by Hall The single originally appeared on the 1976 album, Bigger Than Both of Us. You're a rich girl and you've gone too far because you know it don't matter anyway. You can rely on the old man's money. You can rely on the old man's money. The song was rumored to be about the then scandalous newspaper heiress, Patty Hearst. However, when the song was written in 1977, Daryl Hall was dating a girl named Sarah Allen. But it's not about Sarah either. No, it's about Sarah's ex-boyfriend, Victor Walker, described as a spoiled fast food heir who was a total burnout. For those of you in the Chicago area, you might know the original Pancake House, and apparently his dad, Victor Walker Sr., uh, owned them and some other franchises. So why didn't Hall just title it Rich Guy? I guess it doesn't have that same bounce, but the motivation probably lies somewhere in the Venn diagram of misogyny, money, and power. But according to Pew Research, the wealth gap between America's richest and poorest families has more than doubled from the late 80s to 2016. So, is the guy rich girl was written about even richer today? Well, it looks like Victor Jr.'s brother is actually still in the family business of pancake restaurants. And when you Google Victor Walker, you either learn about his entrepreneurial dad or that Victor Jr. is memorialized forever as a big rich jerk. Lesson, if you're going to be wealthy, don't be a jerk about it because your ex-girlfriend's going to tell everyone and you know the next thing you know. Yeah, that's what you're famous for.
1: Here's what I remember that song for. I was I was like eight when that song came out, and it had another word in it that, was, that rhymed with rich, and it was yeah. quite scandalous that they actually played that song on the radio back then.
0: Oh, yeah, the B word. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Things have changed, huh?
1: Yeah, it's true. It's true.
2: I grew up with that song somehow never knowing that it was hollow notes.
0: Oh, yeah?
1: Yeah, I don't know why. I just never knew that.
0: Wait, like right now, you like you are today years old that you learned that Rich Girl is by Holland Oates? Yeah. It's
1: weird. It's not the song. I- what? Because that was one that was one of their first big hits. And then they really became famous in the in the early eighties. Yeah.
0: Weird. I mean, Rick is no slouch when it comes to music and knowing music, so I'm just very surprised that I taught him something musical. Hey, let's keep going. Next up, Cash everything around me. Cream, get the money, dollar dollar billion. Cream by Wu-Tang Clan was released in 1994. Cream being an acronym for? Bro, Rick, I'm not going to ask you because you probably don't know. Cash rules everything around me. Were you going to get it?
1: I was not going to get that, no.
0: So if you're writing a list of the greatest hip-hop or even greatest songs ever, few are going to argue if you put Cream on that list. The song has a catchy refrain, which I will butcher for you now. Cash rules everything around me. Cream, get the money, dollar-dollar bill, y'all. So trust me, it's catchy when I'm not doing it, which is why the message of the rest of the song is largely ignored. So it's told from the perspective of a young man who wants to be successful. He's trapped in poverty and by a lack of opportunity. Ahem, as I continue. But as the world turns, I learned life is hell, living in the world no different from a cell. But that hook, yeah, oh, it's so good that other performers sample it, reference it. You'll hear it in commercials, But of course, they all tend to leave out the bummer parts. Even George W. Bush reportedly listened to Cream on the campaign trail to himself. So that's fun. All right. As Pitchfork writes, a song that was meant to be an indictment of the conditions created by a capitalist economy has become synonymous with capitalist pursuits. The song has become a tool of the unscrupulous system it was meant to expose. In a way, Cream has become something like the hip-hop equivalent of Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. If you want to stir up some jingoism at a rally in this country, just play Born in the USA. Never mind that it tells the story of a man returning home from Vietnam and not finding much of anything waiting for him. As Rob Harvia writes for The Ringer, prior to Cream, I'm guessing that the vast majority of people who'd soon be wearing those Wu-Tang Clan t-shirts, a lot of suburban teenagers for starts, had no idea what winter in Staten Island was like for a poor young black person. Can you think of Any four sadder words than winter in Staten Island? Right? I mean, I assume we have listeners in Staten Island. I mean, you can write me and tell me I'm wrong. I don't know. All right. A 2018 study by Harvard professors Rev Chetty and Nathaniel Hendren uh, looked into what life was like for 20 million kids and their parents as far as economic mobility goes. And they found out that black boys are the least likely of any group of children to climb out of poverty. Hendren says that part of that difference might have to do with incarceration rates, which are highest for black men. And yes, that's in the song too. All right, last song, Dolly Parton's 9 to 5. Whether you're a boomer who watched the movie in a theater, a Gen Xer who watched it on TBS, or a Gen Wire wearing a sweatshirt on your legs for TikTok, you probably know the song from the very first. So written for the movie 9 to 5, the song was a number one hit in 1981 and went platinum in 2017. So talk about Timeless, yeah. Wow. The movie and the song were inspired by Nine to five, an organization that later became the National Association of Working Women, that was created in 1973 with the aim of bringing fair pay and equal treatment for women in the workplace. It's all there in the song. We know it. Working nine to five, what a way to make a living. Barely getting by. It's all taking and no giving. They just use your mind. They never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. The lyrics go on about how you deserve a promotion. The boss won't let you move ahead. I swear sometimes that man is out to get me. As the Daily Beast puts it, the feminist movement of the 70s organized resistance against male bosses who regarded women around the office as office wives and not fellow professionals. Sexual harassment, low salaries, no raises or promotions, rampant sex and racial discrimination, no sick leave. It's just another day's work for a woman in the 70s and all too often for many people, some 50 years later. Oh, it hurts to say 50 years later. (laughs) (laughs) let's pause for a moment to acknowledge just how genius the typewriter tapping and dings are in that song. I know we're in this like Dolly Parton renaissance where everyone agrees she's a national treasure, but she's also a songwriting genius and probably just a genius genius. Anyway, things have improved a lot for women in the workplace since the 70s. The gender wage gap persists, though, with women making roughly 80 percent of what men make. And combine that with the pandemic hitting women harder than men. Well, I think this song will continue to, to be popular well into the future. To learn more about the 9 to 5 movement, you can check out a documentary that was just released in November called 9 to 5, the story of a movement. So in closing, often songs about money are about excess, in large. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? But many songs about money, while insanely catchy, also have a deeper story to tell about the power of money, who has it and who doesn't. So if you've heard the phrase, don't bore us, get to the chorus, in the case of songs like Rich Girl Cream and 9 to 5, it's more like economic equality, get to the chorus. And that, bro, is what's up.
2: Looking at
1: is back. For those who don't know, Morgan was a writer for The Motley Fool for a decade and is now a partner at the Collaborative Fund, a venture capital firm. Last week, he was on the show to talk about some timely current events, but this week, he's here to discuss timeless lessons on wealth, greed, and happiness. In fact, that's the subtitle of his book, which came out late last year, The Psychology of Money. Thanks for joining us again, Morgan. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Now, when people talk about your work, they express appreciation for your insights, but also your writing skills. So to showcase both, I thought for this interview, uh, I'd read 10 items from your book. Most are direct quotes, and then you expound upon them. How was that? Sound good? Sounds good. All right. Here we go. Number one. So this came from your introduction, and you were talking about two guys who basically endured basically ended up in two different places financially towards the end of their lives. Uh, And here's the quote. In what other industry does someone with no college degree, no training, no background, no formal experience, and no connections massively outperform someone with the best training, the best education, the best connections? I struggle to think
2: of any. I think that, that's, that's true in investing, that there are people with no experience who do better than the professionals. And not just like a couple of random examples, but a lot of people uh, will end up doing, if you are just dollar cost averaging into your 401k and leaving it alone for 20 years, you will probably outperform the huge majority of professional Wall Street investors. And I think that dynamic just doesn't exist in other fields. And to me, the big takeaway from that is that good investing is not about what you know. It's not about how smart you are or where you went to school. Good investing is overwhelmingly about how you behave. It's just your ability to take a long-term mindset, your relationship with greed and fear, how gullible you are, who you trust. And those kind of things are not something that are necessarily taught in school that you learn from you know going to Harvard business school. It's just kind of an innate part of who people are. And to me, it's an optimistic takeaway that ordinary people can and do. You know, really achieve great investing results that are equal, if not better, than a lot of professional investors. Uh, there aren't many other fields that are like that. You don't have ordinary people who can perform open heart surgery better than the the better than Harvard trained cardiologists. That that will never happen. But it does happen in investing, which to me is just a, again a a takeaway about what we should focus on investing: the behavioral side versus the analytical side, and an optimistic realization that ordinary people can do it.
1: Yeah, in the in the story that you you told in your book was really the story of one guy who was, worked at a gas station and worked at J.C. JCPenney at night sweeping floors, died with millions of dollars compared to a Wall Street guy who had millions and millions of dollars, uh, but lost most of it during the Great Recession.
2: Yeah, and there's, you know, that's that. That to me is just a perfect example of just what matters in investing. It's not about how smart you are. It's just your ability to be patient and keep your hands off it and let compounding work for decades versus all of the insight that you might have about where you think the economy is going to go this year.
1: Yeah, one of my favorite uh, Warren Buffett quotes is uh, talking about investment professionals. It's the only industry I can think of where the professionals' efforts subtract value from what the layman can do himself. Uh, So let's move on to quote number two. It's pretty simple. It is. Bill Gates went to one of the only
2: high schools in the world that had a computer. To me, the, the, this chapter is about luck and risk. And the, the interesting thing about luck, and if you think about it, like, Bill Gates went to the only high school in the United States that had a computer, that is an incredible stroke of luck that by his own telling is what created Microsoft. If he didn't go to the, the, the Lakeside School in Seattle, there would have been no Microsoft. That's how Bill Gates phrased it himself. So was Bill Gates lucky? Yes. Like incredible stroke of luck. But that doesn't mean that he was just lucky. Of course, is Bill Gates a hardworking, visionary genius? Like Yes, of course. A hundred times yes, of course he is. But there's this big element of luck. And we often overlook luck in business and investing because if I were to say – You were like your investing success is due to luck. I kind of look jealous. I kind of look like I'm being mean. Like so, so people don't want to say that. Or if I were to say that my own investing success was luck, I don't want to look myself in the mirror and admit that. It's kind of a hard thing to accept. So even though we know that luck is a big part of what happens in business investing, I think it is systematically overlooked in the world. And the other point I made in this chapter was that. The definition of luck is that there are things that can happen in the world that are more powerful and influential than what you did uh, on purpose, that have a a bigger influence over outcomes than anything you did on purpose. That's the definition of luck. That is also the exact definition of risk. The uh, definition of risk is that there are things in the world that are outside of your control that have a bigger influence on outcomes than anything you did intentionally. So luck and risk are like the exact same things, just in opposite directions. And this is important in investing too, because investors spend so much time thinking about risk and trying to measure risk and risk adjusted returns. Like risk is the central feature of investing. But we spend so little time thinking about luck, even if it's like the exact same thing as risk. And I think that the reason we do that is like I just said, luck is just much more difficult to talk about because it's hard to swallow for yourself. And it's hard to ascribe luck to someone else because it makes you look jealous of their success.
1: Yeah, and it, it brings a certain amount of uh, humility to a certain degree about uh, how you do in life. A lot of the things that go well are partially due to what you did, but partially you just being lucky. But also, you know, things that don't go well, it's not always your fault, it's just the way things are. And you've often written about uh, the wealth you have by the time you reach retirement depends an awful lot on when you started investing. If you enter uh, your career in the working world, start contributing to your retirement accounts. At the, the beginning of a bull market, it's going to be a lot different than if you start doing that at the beginning of a bear market.
2: Or if you retired in September of 1929, very different than if you, than if you retired in the early 1990s. Like a completely different dynamic that funded the rest of your retirement, of course, just by the dumb luck of when you were born. Right. So one of the things you can mostly sort of kind of control about your investments is how
1: long you are in investing, your holding period. Uh, which brings us to quote number three, and this is about Warren Buffett, who's now 90 years old. In the, book out, in the book, you point out some interesting facts that as of the time when you wrote the book, his net worth was $84.5 billion, but $84.2 billion was accumulated after his 50th birthday, and $81.5 billion was accumulated after his 65th birthday. So here's
2: the quote, the way you phrased it. His skill is investing, but his secret is time. And this is interesting too. because So 99% of Warren Buffett's net worth came after his 50th birthday. 97% came after his 65th birthday. And what's important about that is that if Warren Buffett retired at age 60, like a normal person – uh, you know, when, when, he was 60 or 65, his net worth was about $300 million, of course, a lot of money, but he would never have been a household name. You never would have heard of him. He never would have been one of the richest men in the world, a decabillionaire billionaire through his investing skills. He would have been one of dozens of people in Boca Raton who retired with $200 million to play golf. Uh, so this is important because when we think about Warren Buffett and we try to answer the question, how did he do it? We often focus on how he thinks about moats and business models and market cycles and valuation, which is all important. But the real reason that he was able to accumulate the wealth that he has, the reason he did it is because he was a good investor for 80 years. That's, that's the, really the secret to his, to his success. So it's easy to overlook what we know is not just part of the story, but 99% of the story, which is just the amount of time he's been investing for as the most critical aspect of how he achieved what he did. This is
1: somewhat of an aside, but one of the things you pointed out that he had such a long time period because he began investing at age 10. You have two kids. They're younger than age 10. Have you thought about how you're going to get them
2: started investing? Uh, they, they all have a hedge fund trading system set up in their bedroom that they use every morning. No, I, I think you know to, to answer your question, no, we have not really thought that much about it. I, I do think that Uh, some people can't be like, there, there, there are some people who understand and are attracted to investing naturally. And there's some people who, no matter what you tell them, they're not, they're not going to get it. And so I I think it's, it's too, it's too early to be kind of putting that, uh, those skills on my children. My, my, my daughter can't even talk yet. So let's take this one step at a time. (laughs) But, um, you know, I, 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 have been asked that question before and I don't have a good answer for it, for how I'm going to teach my kids about money. And it's, it's kind of like all parents Uh, you realize that there are dozens of different ways to raise good kids. And you don't, you're always worrying that you're, you're picking the wrong one. You're not making the right decision. So I I don't necessarily know what we're going to do because everyone's different. And I don't know what their personalities are going to be when they are, you know, uh, you know, 10 years from now, when they will be in in an area where they can and need to really start learning about money. I don't know what their personalities are going to be. And once I and if I don't know that, it's hard for me to shape kind of what financial lessons and how I'm going to teach them until we get there. Gotcha. I'm still changing diaper bros. Let's just take this one day <laughs> at a time, okay? Got Before it. we start talking about retirement for them.
1: <laughs> All right, let's move on to number four. And, and I, as the awfulizer, these are are near and dear to my heart. There are actually two quotes that I think are related. So the first is, There are a million ways to get wealthy, but there's only one way to stay wealthy, some combination of frugality and paranoia. And then the other quote is, more than I want big returns, I want to be financially unbreakable. And if I'm unbreakable, I actually think I'll get the biggest returns because I'll be able to stick around long enough for
2: compounding to work wonders. To me, it's just the the realization that there's a difference between getting rich and staying rich. Uh, which is that getting rich requires optimism. You have to swing for the fences, be optimistic about uh, people's ability to solve problems and businesses' ability to become productive and generate profits. That's how you get rich is being an optimist. Staying rich requires the exact opposite. It requires pessimism and paranoia and making sure that you can survive the short run, all the unexpected recessions and bear markets and and pandemics in the short run that you need to be able to put up with and endure and survive and able to stick around long enough for long-term compounding to work. So I think, look, here, here's, one, here's one other way to phrase this. A subpar investing strategy that you can stick with for decades is going to do much better than a quote unquote perfect investing strategy that you might get scared out of a year or two from now. So I think focusing on endurance is and longevity really is the secret to building wealth because all wealth is a function of of compounding that's the whole secret ingredient of investing is compounding and compounding is just driven by how by time by how long you can stay invested for so when you realize that the key element of investing success is like the key part of the equation is just how long can you stay investing for then to me what really matters is Uh, being financially unbreakable, making sure that during the next next bear market, during the next recession, you're not going to get forced out of the stock market, either because you need the money to pay your bills or psychologically, you get scared out of it. That should be all of the focus in investing is just giving yourself endurance to stick around long enough for compounding to really work its magic.
1: Let's move on to number five here. And this is near and dear to my heart as well as a certified financial planner. And your quote is this, planning is important. But the most important part of
2: any plan is to plan on the plan, not going according to plan. So I finished writing the book uh, last January, January 2020. So like days before COVID started. And so this is the perfect example. You can have a plan about what we think is going to happen in 2020, but in, in every given year, not just 2020, I think every year, every era, every decade, the biggest news story is what no one saw coming. It's the thing. It's it's the the risks that are in the newspapers. Risks about trade wars and budget, budget deficits and elections. It's not that those things aren't risky. It's that they're not surprises. They're in the news every day. People are know that people know these things are happening. Whereas the biggest risk is what you don't see coming. It's things like COVID nineteen or September the eleventh, Pearl Harbor. Those are the things that actually move the needle in the economy. And the common denominator of those is that no one saw them coming. They were impossible to know they were going to happen until the moment that they did their damage. Um, And I think that's always the case. The biggest news story of 2021 will be something that you and I aren't talking about today because it's impossible to know. That's, That's the case every year. So Financial planning is great, of course, but you always have to realize that the most important part of that plan is your ability to endure, to endure the unknown, to put up with uh, risks that you did not see coming, that no one saw coming, rather than thinking that financial planning means that you have a perfect vision of what the future is going to be.
1: Well, that's a perfect lead-in to the next quote here, and it was the beginning of one of your chapters, and the quote was, "'History
2: is the study of change, ironically, as a map to the future.'" That's it. Like the biggest if you're a history buff, most of what you spend your time reading about are the unprecedented events, the big wars, the big political changes, the big groundbreaking companies that were unprecedented at the time. So history is like the study of unprecedented events that have never happened before until they happened. But we often look at history as a map to the future. Particularly if we're, if we're talking about something like stock market returns or the the path of the economy, we look at history and say, "Well, what was the worst-case scenario in the history in, in history? What what if things you know, typically done historically. I think that's an okay kind of first approximation baseline to use. But, you know, for example, if someone were to say the worst case scenario is the Great Depression, that's the worst case scenario that we can imagine is the 1930s Great Depression. Well, back in the late 1920s, people's definition of, of a worst case scenario didn't include what was about to happen. Like the fact that something unprecedented could happen in the past means that something unprecedented can happen in the future. So history is a great guideline of what to expect as a baseline. But we know with almost 100% certainty that the future for the rest of our lives, if we look at you know the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years – are going to include many things. The most important events during that period are going to be things that have not ever happened in the past. So history won't give us necessarily a good guideline of what to expect going forward.
1: The one way you seem to account for that in your own financial planning and, and looking out to the future is you mentioned in the book that when you look at these things, you assume that your returns are going to be about a third below the historical returns. Is that one way
2: to factor in the possibility that the future will be different? So much of that, and that's not a forecast of what I actually think is going to happen in the future. That's just setting expectations. And a lot of people, just how satisfied they are, whether it's financial planning, like how much money they think they will have for retirement, or just their expectations of, wow, I'm really I'm really satisfied with how I've done in the stock market. It's just expectation setting. So if I look historically... And it's you know if you look at the last hundred years or so, the stock market has returned about seven percent per year adjusted for inflation. I think that probably is. If you were to put a gun to my head, that's like that's what I would expect in the future as well. Uh, but when I'm actually thinking about when I'm when I'm running the numbers for my own household about how much money will I need by retirement, how much money will I have by retirement, I use way less than the than the than the than the historic average. Uh, and and look, if it is more, like great, that's just a cherry on top. But I think it's important to to set your expectations and have so much room for error in your forecasting and planning so that if, you know, the world, you know, if the last hundred years was a positive anomaly and we're not going to experience that much growth in the future, you're at least prepared for it. So that's, that's, that, that, that to me is the most reasonable way to plan for the future when the biggest risk is what we don't see coming is to just take what has happened historically and discount it so that you're, you're setting yourself up for better returns.
1: The seventh item also includes a bit of history. It's actually not a quote, but some stats that you cited in the book, and then you recently tweeted uh, about similar research, and it's this. Uh, so According to an analysis by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, from 1980 to 2014, the positive returns from the Russell 3000, which is basically the total stock market, the positive return was attributable to just 7% of the companies, and 40% of the stocks lost 70% or more of their value and didn't recover over that time period. So for you, what's the takeaway when the market's
2: returns are reliant on a small handful of stocks? I think it's always been that way, and it always will be that way. That capitalism is brutally competitive and takes no prisoners. So it's always going to be the case that if you invest in a hundred companies in almost any industry, that if you were to look out, you know, one generation and the fewer in, 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 into the future. Fewer than half of those companies are still going to be in business. That's the normal dynamic of how these things work. But it's not intuitive for most people. If they make, if they invest in a hundred companies, they expect all one hundred of those companies to do well because they put in, you know, research and diligence. And if I'm investing my money in that, it better do well. Even like the most successful professional investors, the majority of their returns come from a small minority of the investments that they've made. Warren Buffett mentioned at a Berkshire Hathaway conference. Uh, this was five or six years ago. He said that over the course of his life, he's bought uh, he's bought he's purchased roughly 500 stocks, and he's made the majority of his money on 10 of them. And this is something that Charlie Munger has pointed out as well. That if you take Berkshire Hathaway's long term track record and you take out the top five investments that it's made. Its track record falls to average. Just take out five investments that it's made and it, it falls to average. So I think that's always the case. This is true for, for, for someone like, like, like uh like Dave and Tom Gardner as well. You look at Dave Gardner's long-term, long-term track record, which is extraordinary. And you take out a handful of the top picks, and it very quickly becomes not extraordinary anymore. But that's normal. That's not to say that, oh, because I showed that it's a fluke. That's always what happens when you have long-term returns. like Tails drive everything in the economy. But since it's not intuitive, you really have to go out of your way to remind yourself of that.
1: Yeah. When people see these numbers, they, they could conclude a couple of things. First of all, they might say, you know what, I'm just going to be an index fund investor, which is fine. And we'll get into that later. Other people, they think, okay, I'm still going to buy individual stocks, but they have to find this balance, right? Where they have to be diversified enough so that they own at least a couple of those small handful of winners, but that you don't own so many stocks that you've kind of diversified away the benefit of picking one of those winners. And here at the Mali Fool we talk about this all the time and different analysts have different opinions. You should own fifteen
2: stocks, you should own thirty, but you shouldn't own more than fifty. It's a tough balancing act. Yeah, I mean, one way to show that, if you look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is 30 stocks, and you compare it to the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index, which is 3,300 stocks, 30 stocks, which is 3,300. The correlation between those two over time is in the high 90%. Like if you made a chart of those two indexes, there's like virtually no difference. So owning 30 stocks or 3,000 stocks gave you roughly the same return with the same volatility. So what, what, once you have a couple of those big winners in either index, then the total returns of those portfolios tends to converge. All
1: right, let's get a little bit to the purpose of having money. And here's how you described it in our eighth quote here. The ability to do what you want, when you want, with who you want, for as long as you want is priceless. It is the highest dividend money pays.
2: That to me is like always what I've wanted out of savings and money is just independence and control over my time. And it's not that I don't like nice stuff, nice homes, nice cars, but I think me and and anyone will just get used to those things and accustomed to those things. You buy something nice and it feels good for like an hour and then you get used to it. Whereas controlling your time, having independence to work where you want. Uh, live where you want, retire when you want on your own terms, rather than someone else telling you when to go to work and someone else telling you when you can retire is something that is something that money can provide that adds a lot of permanent happiness to people. Uh, and one nuance here too is that it's not necessarily that having independence will make you happier. It's that not having independence will make you less happy. It's like having that level of freedom is just taking away a lot of misery and displeasure that people have uh, if they don't control their time that, 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 that can bring you, at, you know, back up to a, 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 a higher quality of life than you would otherwise. So it's just, it's just looking at money as it's, it's obvious what money can do for you in terms of buying stuff. But most people end there. But I think the independent side of it is a really important aspect that it can bring that goes overlooked.
1: In the book, you cite a study that probably many people have heard from. But basically, it was, it was asking, I think it was 1,000 people who are toward the end of their life, You know, what do you regret or what, do you, what, what are your thoughts now? And none of them said, I wish I had worked more. I wish I had more money. They all said, I would wish I had more time. I wish I had spent more time with my kids. I would wish I had more experience, things like that.
2: More more GameStop is, is, what, is what they all want. That was the biggest regret. So true. So true. All
1: right. Coming up on to quote number nine, uh, and it's related to what we just talked about, and here we go. Wealth is the nice cars not purchased, the diamonds not bought, the watch is not worn, the clothes foregone, and the first class upgrade declined. Wealth is the financial assets that haven't yet been converted into the stuff you see.
2: Yeah. I think like, there, there, there's one other quote that I have in the book, which is that when most people say they want to be a millionaire, what they actually mean is I want to spend a million dollars, which is the opposite of being a millionaire. Like What wealth is, is wealth is savings that you have not spent. And that's, what, what's really important about this is that because wealth is what you don't see, we don't see it out in society. What you see are the cars that other people are driving. You see other people's homes. You don't see their bank account. You don't see their brokerage statement. You don't see their wealth. It's not visible. And this is important because it has a big skewing effect on the role models who we look up to. I mean, one, one example that I use in the book is something like physical fitness is visible. If someone is in very good shape or very bad shape, you see that. And therefore, we, I think, subconsciously can say, I want to look like this person. They're, they're my role model. I don't want to look like this person. Let's just try to stay away from that because it's all visible. Um, but wealth is invisible. So how do I, if I'm looking at you, I have no idea what your net worth is. No clue whatsoever. It's not visible to me. So how do I look up to people? And I might be looking up to someone who I think is very wealthy because they drive a Ferrari and they live in a nice house. But if, if you see someone driving a $100,000 car, the only thing you know about their their financial situation is that they have a hundred thousand less dollars than they did. Fewer dollars than they did before they bought the car. That's the only thing you know about it. So I think just the fact that wealth is invisible just makes it very hard to learn about other people's financial situation. And you add to this how taboo money is. That even if you know not only is wealth invisible, but even if you ask people about it, they're not going to tell you what their net worth is. They're not going to tell you what their salary is. It's a very tab you know taboo topic that makes it just much harder to learn about than other areas of life.
1: The final chapter in your book. Uh- is, to me, one of the most interesting. It's basically where you talk about how you manage your own money. You've been writing about investing for well over a decade. You started investing when you were a young person. You've learned a lot. You've read about a lot of companies, read about a lot of stocks, and I think some of the way you manage your money might be surprising to people. So Here are the four key takeaways here for our 10th and final item. So This is money management in the household. High savings rate, the house is paid for, so no mortgage for Morgan, 20% of your liquid assets are in cash, and you invest in index funds. And you had a good quote about that. One of my deeply held investment beliefs is that there is little correlation between investment effort and investment results."
2: And that's it. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, what I want to do, what, like what I really want is I want to be financially unbreakable because that will give us endurance to let like, compounding work. So that's where the paranoia around debt comes in, which I mentioned something like not having a mortgage is like the worst financial decision you can make because you can get a 30 year fixed rate mortgage for like nothing these days and invest the difference in the stock market, but it would make us a little bit less durable than we would be. If we, you know, if we have, if our living expenses are so low that we know that we can have the endurance to last and, 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 and hold the stocks that we do own for the next 30, 40, 50 years. So there's that. And then what we want is independence as well. And just, I, I, I really don't have any desire to become the world's greatest investor and I never will. So that's fine. So I just try to keep it as simple as I possibly can so that I can spend all of my bandwidth doing something else, like reading about other topics and writing about other topics, uh, rather than trying to pick the next winners and i it, it's i look i'm i'm not a passive zealot at all I'm not one of the people who says everyone should be a passive investor no one can beat the market there are a lot of those people but that's that's not me but my personality and my wife's personality is just let's just keep it as simple as possible let's aim for independence so we can spend our time doing something else and one takeaway from that too is I always have to have this disclaimer where it's like I write my my investing strategy, but I'm not recommending that to anyone else. I'm not saying this is the right way to invest. It's the right way for us, but everyone's different. Everyone has different personality. Everyone has different goals. Everyone has a different family situation. No two people are alike. And I think we often view investing like it's math, where two plus two equals four for me and you and everyone else. There's one right answer for everyone. And investing and money management is not that at all. Everyone's completely different. So just because... I do this with my money and you do that with your money. Like we're not disagreeing with each other. It's not that I'm saying like the fact that you own this stock and I own this stock means that we have a disagreement. Like, no, we're just different people and that's fine. Like it's it's okay to embrace that equally smart people, equally informed people can and do come to completely different conclusions in life. And I think the more that we embrace that, the more it gives you a little just a bit more freedom to use money in a way that makes you happy versus trying to chase the quote unquote right answer of what you're supposed to do. Purgality
1: is definitely a part of it. And one interesting uh, biographical tidbit I learned from reading the book, even though you and I have known each other now since, I don't know if you remember, we met at the Berkshire Hathaway oh, remember, meeting yeah. in 2009. I do remember. Um, your dad went to med school and became a doctor in his 40s. Yeah. So you grew up in a household where your dad was in med school, your mom was, I think, in nursing school. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, I, as someone who was pre-med, am fascinated by the idea of someone going to med school at midlife. But you learned that you could have a perfectly
2: good, happy life living on relatively modest means. Yeah, because for for most of my childhood, and my brother, who's five years older than me, so he had even more of this, it it was even a larger chunk of his upbringing. My parents were students, and we were just living off of like student grants, and we were, we had nothing. We were broke, broke, broke. But I think a, a lot of people in that situation will say something similar to this of like, Particularly me as a child, we didn't. I, I had no idea that we were poor. Like I had a great child. We had fun. Everything was great. But I used it in the book because my dad became a doctor when he was I think forty three, and my brother was like almost in high school. And the frugality that was uh, required of them when they were in school stuck with them even after he became a doctor. Like that never went away. And that was so. My, my parents had a very high savings rate, which allowed them to retire when they wanted to. That was the big takeaway from the book. Is that like I saw that independence that I gave my my parents in a way that it was like, that's that's a really key part of having a good life is having a high savings rate in a way that gives you independence and autonomy to do what you want when you want. That that to me was like the biggest the biggest takeaway from watching my parents go through that, that cycle.
1: Uh, so uh, before we did the show, I asked you if you have another book coming out. You said you're already
2: working on it. When can we expect it? Books have a long, uh, you know, turnaround time, let's say. So I would, I would guess, and it's no more than that, that by, uh, April, 2022, it'll be on the shelves. That's my guess. Books take a while to, to put together. Got it.
0: Do they, Morgan? Do they, <laughs> they, they, <laughs> do they take a long time do they take, take a deadline? <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: it. I mean, uh, so if you've, if you've heard any other interviews with Morgan, you know he had a year to write this book and he kind of waited until he only had a couple of months left to actually write it. So I think that's the secret. Just give you two months, Morgan, and you'll get the book out.
2: That's one way to do it. But, but even after you've written it, the amount of time to design the cover, print the copies, distribute the copies to Amazon, whatever, it takes months. I'm used to the blogging world where as soon as I'm done writing, I hit publish and it's, and it's done. The book world's totally oh. different.
1: Well, fortunately, dear listeners, you don't have to wait that long to read uh, stuff from Morgan. You can pick up his excellent book that is available now, The Psychology of Money, and you could also read his posts at collaborativefund.com forward slash blog. Morgan, thanks again for joining us on Motley Full Answers. This has been fun. Thanks, guys. All
0: right. Well, that's the show. It's edited musically by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Send us your questions. We'll try to answer them in the next mailbag. Or not. We try. We try. For Robert Brocamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.